Amen. Thank you, Laura. That was really wonderful. Oh, we can clap again. It's a beautiful song about the body of Christ. So thank you, Laura, for leading us in special music today. We're going to go to Romans 14 here in a moment. And, you know, as uh, we sang a song a moment ago and, Paul and, and Steve talked about knowing, knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus. And I thought of a few comments, you know, uh, knowing Jesus is not simply about intellectual faith. You know, in James chapter 2, starting at verse 14, James... I wasn't turned on. Oh, hold on. Wait, try it now. There, now I'm turned on. There we go. In James chapter 2, verse, that's a little different, isn't it? In James chapter 2, starting verse 14, he tells about faith and, and works. And knowing Jesus is not just about intellectual faith. It's mind, heart, and will. The will is the, the volition. Mind, heart, and will. And I heard Dr. Idelnik talk about this just yesterday on Moody Radio related to James chapter 14. You know, we must have the mind, which is the intellect, the knowledge to know something, know about Jesus. He died on our cross for our sins and, and he rose again. That's the mind. And then we have the heart. That's the conviction that this is true. This is true for me. So you have the mind and you have the heart. And then you must have the will. You have to have, have the volition. We have to have the volition and we have to determine that, that we have to make that faith our own, the mind, the heart, the will, or volition. So in the Titanic, I'm assuming most of you heard of the Titanic, in the Titanic, some did not know there were lifeboats, and so they went down with the ship. They did not know. They did not have the knowledge. It's that deals with the knowledge of salvation. They did not go on because they didn't know. Others knew. They had the intellectual knowledge of the lifeboats, but looked on the Atlantic and thought, this is too cold and this is too scary. Those lifeboats cannot save me. They had the knowledge, but they didn't have the heart for the saving from the Titanic. There were others who knew the lifeboats could save them. They had the knowledge. They had the heart. They knew the lifeboats could save them, but they would not get in them because they would not leave a husband or family member behind. They did not have the volition. They did not have the will. They did not have the action. They didn't have the convict. They had the conviction, but not the volition. Others knew they had the knowledge. They had the conviction. They had the heart, and they had the volition. And they got in the lifeboats and were rescued. So when we're saved, it's mind, heart, and will. We need the volition too. And so as I heard that, and as I heard uh, Steve share, you know, and, and that's a beautiful song about knowing Jesus, about having a relationship with Jesus. And so obviously. And with any sermon that, 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 I, that I deliver here, with any talk we want to give, whether Bible study or whatever, we want to make sure that we know Jesus, that we're living in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, John chapter 15, I always pray in reference. He's the vine, we are the branches. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, we don't just follow Jesus, we live with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is with us. And as we go through the sermon, I pray and hope if you don't know Jesus, maybe today would be the day where the Holy Spirit convicts you to come to know him as Lord and Savior. I hear the, um, there we go, it went away. 
live stream is working. I just heard it. Um, you know, but think about something different. So we're going through Romans chapter 14. And just to review, Romans chapters 1 through 11 were all about this great doctrine, this great theology. Then we got into the morals, the ethics. And now we're in Romans chapter 15, actually, 15 verses 8 through 13. Think about something different about the church. You know, Laura just sang a beautiful song about, you know, the church. And she read a beautiful scripture about it. Think about something different about the church. Philip Yancey shares something different about the church. He writes this. He says, as I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Diversity. Beginning with Pentateuch, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The disciples had been hiding. Fifty days previously, Peter had denied Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and Peter gives this powerful sermon and there were many different countries represented there. Many different cultures represented there. Many different languages represented there. There was great diversity. Philip Yancey says, Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And, you know, it comes from the Talmud, really, which was a Jewish writing around the second century where Jewish people would actually pray, thanking God they were not born a woman, slave, or even a Gentile, which would be a non-Jewish person. And then Paul later writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Philip Yancey is emphasizing the diversity in the church. Philip Yancey continues. He says, and this is really, really important. Get this. One modern Indian pastor told me, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. How are miracles duplicated? I believe demonic activity. It's Halloween, right? Let's remember, there's a spiritual war going on, okay? But... Even though most of what the churches in Indian countries and Hindu and in Muslim countries, even though most of what they can do, what they do can be duplicated, this Indian pastor said, in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. The miracle is how the Christian church can mix people from different castes. Remember in India, they have a caste system, different races and different social groups. Uh, Philip Yancey says, diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. He says, just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing, a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? Philip Yancey closes this article saying, when I walk into a church, 
The more its members resemble each other and resemble me, the more uncomfortable I feel. That's an interesting analysis, isn't it? Many times we don't think about that. But Christianity, from very early on, from Pentecost, has brought together diversity. In the testimony of an Indian pastor from, like, real India, about how Christianity stands out, that they can bring together these different social classes, these different caste systems, that it can bridge that. And that's what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 14. My theme today is Christ is the hope of both Jews and Gentiles. That was a big dividing wall right right then and there. And Jewish people and Gentiles, they didn't get along. They didn't eat the same food. They didn't sit at the same table. But Paul is saying Christ is the hope of both Jews and Gentiles. And here's an application. Don't look down on anyone because Jesus is a savior of all who believe. Don't look down on anyone. Jesus is a savior of all who believe. And we all do it. Or we're lying to ourselves. I believe that, at least. We all have those thoughts, negative thoughts, bad thoughts about others, for whatever reason. And I believe we need to reprove those as soon as they come. And we need to say a simple prayer, Lord, forgive me for those thoughts. Help me to see everyone created in the image of God. Remember that the previous chapters have been about conscience issues. So now Paul is bringing this to a conclusion that Jesus is a savior. Jesus is our hope. And this is true of the Jews and Gentiles alike. It's true of everyone. So the first few verses, verse 8, Christ came for the Jewish people in order to show God's promise to the patriarchs. And so the Gentiles will glorify God. That's verse 8. Read with me verse 8. He says in verse 8, for I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Christ came as a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm, to confirm, to testify the promises given to the patriarchs. So Paul's continuing in verses one through seven, Paul used the example of Christ in order to motivate us to love others and not to judge one another over conscious issues. He gave the example of Christ. What better example can we go to, right? The example of Christ. He gave the example of Christ. In verse eight, Paul continues to give the example of Christ. Dr. Ben Witherington, who teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, makes the case that these verses, verses nine through 11, right here in this passage, actually verses, um, verses eight and nine, verses eight and nine, actually are, are looking back to Romans chapters nine, 10, and 11. Actually, the theme of Romans chapters nine, 10, and 11 can be summarized in Romans chapter 15, verses eight and nine. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul was answering the question, why are Jewish people, why are the people of Israel rejecting the Messiah? And in Romans chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul had used all these Old Testament quotations to show that God is being consistent with his promises. Way back in the Old Testament, way back in Deuteronomy, God had said that the Gentiles will proclaim the gospel, that non-Jewish people will worship God, that non-Jewish people will be saved. And way back in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, God had prophesied that only a remnant of Israel of Israel would remain. But at the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul said that in the future, all Israel 
will be saved. I believe that's still to come. So right here, Paul's coming back to that. Paul is going back to the Old Testament to show God is being consistent with his word. We can trust God. And right here in verse 8, Paul says Christ became a servant. You ever think about that? Christ became a servant. When we are serving, we are being like Jesus. When we are being generous, when we are giving, we are being like Jesus. When we are setting aside our own desires and our own preferences and so on, we are being like Jesus. We know that Jesus thought of others first. Philippians chapter two, verses three through 11, Paul writes about it. Jesus left his heavenly abode to become a man and die on the cross for us. And he's not dead anymore. He rose again. And because he lives, we too shall live again. Jesus did that for us. He didn't do that for himself, and he certainly didn't do that for his health. I noticed as that video was scrolling as Laura was singing, you see Jesus' hands, and you can see the holes in his hands. He didn't do that for himself. In fact, I thought about Revelation, how it even talks about the scars uh, remain, you know, from the cross, and maybe even the holes remain from the cross. He didn't do that for himself. He did that for us. He did that for our salvation. He did that so that everyone who believes and trusts in him as Lord and Savior can be saved. So Christ became a servant, Paul writes, to the circumcised. That's interesting, right? Who are the circumcised? The Jewish people. Going all, the back, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 14, the Jewish people have been required to circumcise their male children. So circumcised right there is code for Israel. Now we could ask, why couldn't Paul just say Christ became a servant to Israel? Christ became a servant to the Jewish people. And I think it's just because they knew, they knew quite well that circumcision was part of being a Jewish person. So Christ came as a servant to Israel. And for what purpose did Christ come? To show God's truthfulness. Notice how much there is in this one verse. When we pause and we slow down and read our Bible, the Holy Spirit can show us a lot. There's a lot in this one verse. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness or faithfulness. Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Jesus became a servant. He showed that God was faithful. God is faithful. Jesus confirmed all of these promises made. Notice how Paul says to the patriarchs. That's Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. They're identified as the patriarchs. This continues in verse 9. Paul's about to mix together Jesus' purpose to the Jews and the Gentiles together. He's starting with the Jews in verse 9. And then he's going to jump and use a litany about four Old Testament quotations to mix in the Jewish people and the Gentiles together, Israel and the non-Israelites. So now we're going to see in verses 9 through 12, Paul uses the Old Testament to show God's promises to the Gentiles. Let's read verses 9 through 12, 9 to 12, Romans 15, 9 to 12. He picks up from this verse and he says, and in order, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he talked about the circumcised, right? And now he jumps to the Gentiles, as I said. And verse 9 links with verse 8. Verse 9, and in order 
Let's put it in context. I'm gonna read these together. Let's start at verse eight again. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Whenever you see as it is written, it's code for he's about to quote the Old Testament. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles have hope. He lists one Old Testament promise after another after another, after another, to show God is being consistent with his word. So verse nine continues from verse eight. Christ had a purpose. John MacArthur's um, note about this is very, very important. He says, to show that God's plan had always, had always been to bring Jews and Gentile alike into his kingdom and to soften the prejudice of Christian Jews against their Gentiles' brothers. Get this. Paul quotes from the law, the prophets, and twice from the Psalms. The law, the prophets, and twice from the Psalms. The law, what would the law be? Capital L. Paul quotes from the law. What that, anybody can shout it out. The what? Go ahead. The Ten Commandments, and a broad, in a broader scale, what else would it be? No, not just the Old Testament. The Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which means five. Paul quotes uh, from the law, the first five books, and he quotes from the prophets, and he quotes twice from the Psalms. And that's important because they all, that, that is all of the recognized divisions of the Old Testament. Paul quotes from all of the recognized divisions of the Old Testament in order to prove God's plan from their own scriptures. See, if he quoted from the prophets and the Psalms but left out the law... The Sadducees only took the Torah. They only believed the Torah, the Pentateuch. They didn't believe the prophets. The Pharisees believed it all. Paul quoted from all of those parts. Christ had a purpose that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He says, as is written, and as I said, this means Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Verse 9 quotes 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty 50 and Psalm eighteen forty-nine. God will receive praise among the Gentiles. And if you look up that passage and the following in your Old Testament, you'll find out that most of the time it is translated as nations. The Hebrew word nations and Gentiles is the same thing. Anybody who is a non-Israelite would be a Gentile. The nations. In Psalm 1849, the Messiah, that's Jesus, that means anointed one. The Messiah stands among converted Gentiles and offers their praise along with his own to the Father. Isn't that powerful? The Messiah, Jesus, alongside those of the nations, the non-Israelites, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one, high priest and king, perfect priest and king and prophet, bringing together all three of those offices, standing amongst non-Israelites, offering praise to God. Psalm 1849. Verse 10 is quoted from Deuteronomy 32:43, which would have been written about 1,400 years before Christ. And that's rejoicing from the Gentiles with his people. This would be a Jewish people rejoicing with Gentiles. Verse 11 is quoted from Psalm 117, verse 1. Again, praising the Lord from the Gentiles and all the nations. And it's interesting in Psalm 117, verse 1, Paul quotes not from the Hebrew, not from the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, but from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Around 170 BC, about 170 years before Christ, 
the Jewish people came together and they translated the Old Testament into the Greek. Now, if you go back to your Old Testament and you look up Psalm 117.1, that's translated from the Hebrew Old Testament. But there is the Greek Old Testament. And, it seem, and it's, not, it's not that it seems, it's, it's accurate. Psalm 117 verse 1 is Paul quoting from the Greek Old Testament. They knew that. They spoke Greek. Greek was a common language of the day. At the appointed time when Jesus came, he came when most of the known world spoke Greek. Paul could go to any of these people and speak Greek and declare the gospel. In verse 12, it's quoting from Isaiah 11 verse 10. It says, the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse is a way of referring to Jesus as a descendant of David. And thus, of David's father, Jesse. King David in the Old Testament. His father was Jesse. In all the prophecies said the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. Jesus, a descendant of David, the root of Jesse. From the descendants of David, there will be a ruler over the Gentiles, the nations. And he will give the Gentiles hope. This is clearly about Jesus. So Paul strung together these Old Testament quotes. And what's the purpose? He is showing that God is being consistent with his word. Now, what's that mean for us? We'll come back to this in the applications, but it means God is faithful. We can trust him. We can trust him. All throughout Genesis to Revelation, God was consistent with his word. All these prophecies about the Messiah, about Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. Sometimes you may open your Bible and you come to a genealogy and you're like, what do I do with this? What do I do with these genealogies? Those genealogies are showing that God is faithful. We see these genealogies in Nehemiah and Ezra when the Israelites are coming back to the promised land after exile and they put those genealogies in and showing God is faithful. He has not abandoned his people. We see the genealogies in Luke chapter three and Matthew chapter one about Jesus, the Messiah, and showing God is faithful. God is consistent with his word. And the apostle Paul is putting these Old Testament passages right here to show God is faithful. God is consistent with his word. That's powerful. Verse 13 is Paul's prayer. Read with me verse 13, Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope... Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Remember remember how I said there's a lot in one verse. There is a lot in this one verse. May the God of hope. There's a lot just there. It seems that in this verse, Paul is going back to his prayer from verses 5 and 6. In last week's message, uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 6, Paul gave a prayer for the people. And now he's again giving a prayer for the people. And this prayer is more of an exhortation. He's praying an exhortation over them. I was thinking about sometimes how the Lord leaves me to pray for my children before they go to bed. And I thought, sometimes those prayers, I never got this. I think the Holy Spirit did it. I'm not crediting me, I'm crediting God there. Um, sometimes the prayers, and maybe some t- for you too, your prayers for your children, your grandchildren, they're more exhortations. You're thinking, you're praying for their future belief in Christ. Because if your kids don't have Christ, if your grandkids don't have Christ, they don't have nothing. You can give them the best college in the world. They don't have nothing without Jesus. I've done funerals for non-Christians and Christians alike. Without Jesus, we have nothing. Think about it. You can have a great life for 100 years. What about eternal life? But also, what about the loneliness? 
without Jesus. Jesus doesn't only offer eternal life. He also offers complete life, abundant life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came to give us life and give it to us abundantly. Rockefeller said, how much money is, he was asked, how much money is enough? Like those people were very, very rich, even by today's standards, all right? How much money is enough? He said just a little bit more. He went into great depression, even with all his wealth. Without Christ, we have nothing. And right here, right here, Paul is giving a prayerful exhortation. And a prayerful exhortation. He identifies God as the God of hope. Is our hope in God? Is our hope for salvation in God? Is Jesus our ultimate hope? Is he your daily hope? Someone wrote, uh, someone without hope lives without a sail to drive him, without ballast to stabilize him, without a rudder to guide him, without an anchor to hold him. My dad had a small boat, his 14 half foot fishing boat. We'd go out on a lake. The waves would toss that boat around. Sometimes even the anchors, we'd realize we're moving, aren't we? Check that anchor. Is it all the way on the ground? Someone without hope is like a boat without an anchor. It's just tossing about. It's just going wherever the, the waves take him. Is God our hope? Is Jesus your hope? Paul asked that God, the God of hope, fills him with all joy and peace. Do you have joy in Jesus? Do you have peace in Jesus? Paul asked that God, the God of hope, fills him with that joy and peace. Martin Luther, the reformer, today's Reformation Sunday, by the way, uh, the anniversary of when he nailed the 95 Thesis on the castle door at uh, Wittenberg, Germany, pronounced Wittenberg. Uh, Luther says, the apostle places joy first and then peace. You ever notice that? He places joy first and then peace. Because it is joy that gives peace to men engendering it in their hearts. It is joy that gives peace to men. Is, do we have peace from God? Philippians 4, 6-7, do not be anxious for anything, but in all situations, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present, present your request to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes we might have to tune in on that verse several times. We are so enamored with stressors, real life stress, real life hardship. And we have to go back and back again and again to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. No, 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 I gotta pray. I gotta pray with thanksgiving. I gotta add up a hundred things to be thankful for. I gotta do this again and again to have the peace of God because life is a struggle. But without Jesus, we won't even get that peace. Paul gives a purpose. Like I said, this is all in this verse and we've only begun to look at this verse. We won't mine it of its true treasures today. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And here's the purpose. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is power in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pastor Bill Rotar will be teaching two months in Sunday school, starting next week on spiritual gifts. In the first two or three Sundays, he's gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. Paul right here is saying, so that the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. There is power through the Holy Spirit residing within us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he asks that they abound in hope. It seems that he is asking, God is the God of hope. God fills him with all joy and peace in believing. The joy and peace are connected with believing. Notice that. The joy and peace are connected with believing. Believing what? 
What are they believing? Believing John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, his unique son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall inherit everlasting life. Believing John 14, 6, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by him. Believing John 10, 10, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's come to, Jesus has come to give us life and give it to us abundantly. Believing that Jews and Gentiles alike can be saved. Believing the, 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 the passages that Paul has been listing in, in the whole book of Romans about salvation and about how Jesus is the savior of the whole world. When we're believing that, we have the joy and peace. Again, I want to break down verse 13. I want to start over. God is the God of hope. God fills them with all joy and peace in believing. Then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul asks that they abound in hope. We get the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not get just a little bit of hope. Paul prays that they abound in hope. Notice that. Notice the words. Paul prays that they have the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they abound, abound in hope. Not just a little bit of hope. He doesn't say, may you get a little bit of hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. No, the power of the Holy Spirit is abounding. It's like a fire hydrant, right? Fire hydrant, when it's opened up, it's not just a little bit of water. It's a lot of water coming out. The power of the Holy Spirit makes us abound in hope. And we also get the hope by God filling us with joy and peace and believing but it all comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. I wanna make some applications and this is also some review. Don't look down on anyone because Jesus is the savior of all who believe. Rebuke, reprove any thoughts that make us look down on anyone. None of us are better when we come to the throne. It's all about the grace of God. Remember that the previous chapters have been about conscience issues. So now Paul is bringing this to a conclusion that Jesus is a savior. Jesus is our hope. And this is true of Jews and Gentiles. We must be encouraged that Christ came as a servant to the Jewish people in order to show God's truthfulness. God is faithful. We must be encouraged that Christ came as a servant to the Jewish people in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in verse eight. We must be encouraged that Christ came as a servant to the Jewish people in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. If you are here and your background is non-Israelite, like me, you are part of the nations, part of the Gentiles. And because Christ came, we can glorify God. We must see these scriptures from verses nine through 12 and remember that God is faithful. We can trust him. God has acted in a way that is consistent with his word. May God be our God of hope. May God fill us with all joy and peace. May we receive this joy and peace because we are believing the promises of God. May we seek the power of the Holy Spirit through believing the promises of God so that we abound in hope. Is God your hope? I can almost guarantee that on certain days, that's a struggle for us. And we always have to do a heart check. Don't excuse it. Don't excuse the lack of hope. Let me say that again. Don't excuse the lack of hope in God. Rebuke the lack of hope in God, the lack of joy in God, the lack of peace in God.
Many times we excuse it. We just say, oh, I just deal with anxiety. Many of us deal with anxiety. And sometimes it's an organic issue and you need medication. But many times it's fear. It's a lack of trusting God. Get, talk to Christian friends, Christian counsel, get help. It's a lack of hope in God. Many times our lack of hope in God, though, is shown by our lack of church commitment and lack of commitment to the scriptures. If you're only in the scriptures one day a week and you're not involved in Sunday school, small groups, prayer groups, things like that, you're going to struggle to hope in God because you're not living with God. You have a date with him once a week. I mean, imagine being married for 50 years and having a date with your wife once a week, even though you can have a date with her or him every day. You can have breakfast together every day. You're retired. You can have breakfast with God every single day through spiritual disciplines, through devotions. You can even have a relationship with God through the body of Christ, through prayer groups and small groups and Bible studies and Sunday school. And many times we think, I'm just too busy. We get it backwards. When we are busy, you need that prayer time more. When we have a lot of stressors, you need that Sunday school class, that small group, that Bible study, that worship service even more. It's like when John Piper was asked if speeding's a sin. And um, I refuse to talk about that subject, but uh, he said, look, you can drive, the, you can think you're gonna drive 10 miles per hour over the speed limit, get to work quicker and get more work done. But you fail to obey the laws of the land and in failing to obey the laws of the land, you may get to work quicker and God and his providence may make you have a copier jam that'll take up that whole time. You put God first, sometimes things line up better. I encourage you to put God first. May he be your hope, your peace. Christians come together in unity and we make a difference. In 2011, New York Times editorialist Nicholas Kristof, Nicholas Kristof is not a Christian, which makes this little article all the more important. Listen to this. He wrote a column praising the work of many evangelical Christians. Kristof begins by noting that at times, evangelical leaders act hypocritically and don't reflect Christ. However, he also goes on to write the following. Listen to this. But in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, he says, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities, mostly church-related. More importantly, he says, now he's writing about Christians, okay, and he's a non-Christian. More importantly, he says, evangelicals disproportionately go to the front lines at home or abroad into battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. He says, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And he says, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York time, at New York cocktail parties. It's a powerful testimony to Christians coming together, making a difference. Why? Because God is our hope. And Jesus is a savior of all who believe. Let's pray. Lord God, as I pray right now, closing up this message, I must acknowledge that for some here, or maybe those watching online or listening on the podcast later on, you are not their savior. 
They have, maybe some are believing in you. They believe, maybe they believe for years, but you're not their savior. Maybe some have committed to you a long time ago, but they're not living for you. You're honestly not their hope. Lord God, this passage is so powerful telling me, showing me that you're faithful, we can trust you. You were faithful to the promises in the Old Testament and you are still faithful to your promises and you're going to be faithful in the promises in the future, the promises to us and to everyone who believe. Lord God, if anyone here or anyone watching at home does not know you, truly have a relationship with you, may today be the day to confess they are a sinner in need of a savior, to believe in you as the one and only savior, to trust in you and commit to you. May today be the day to not only believe with the cognitive knowledge, but also to trust and commit, to have that volition, that commitment to get in the lifeboat, so to speak, to trust in you as Lord and savior. Maybe some need to rededicate their life to you, recognizing they've strayed and they wanna rededicate. Oh, Jesus, help us to live for you. Maybe some they believe, but now they need to commit. Lord, I pray that they do not resist the Holy Spirit's nudging. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. And Lord God, whether we've been a believer for decades or just a day, we all need the Holy Spirit's help. We need the power of the Holy Spirit referenced in this passage. Lord, help us trusting in you, in the power of the Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen.